following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officious dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. Ladies and gentlemen, that's right. Yet again, it's time for all life on Mother Earth uh, for us all to stand up and be counted and uh, to get some of that life for ourselves and to keep it uh, for all uh, living things and all of our living systems here on our precious planet. That's right. It's environmental as anything time. I'm Sean O'Shaughnessy. Thank you for joining me today. Very glad to have your company. Also, thank you to the Bunjalung Nation for being our hosts here on their land. This land was stolen and has uh, never been ceded and uh, will always remain the property of the Bunjalung Nation. So uh, thanks to them for their forbearance and patience while uh, we colonists get our act together to start uh, acting in a just and democratic manner here on this country of theirs. We are, of course, uh, here on Mother Earth all together, so we, uh, we need each other and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's important that we, we work together. So uh, here we have uh, on Environmental As Anything, as always, a huge lineup of stories for you for the week. Um, there's been some really inspiring and exciting stuff and uh, I'm looking forward to, to presenting it to you. Um, of course, uh, one, of, one of the most inspirational and courageous journeys I've ever heard of is the Sail for Sanity uh, journey that's going on right now as we speak. Uh, Tom Hunt and Dr. Simon Leslie uh, from the Illawarra are actually sailing a tiny outrigger kayak uh, up the coast from Port Kembla to Newcastle. So they're going from one of uh, the world's biggest coal ports to the world's biggest coal port just to demonstrate the fact that we may need to make uh, some sacrifices, we may need to take some risks, we may need to have courage, but it is well within our capacity to make the journey from uh, a fossil fueled past into a renewable prosperity uh, future. So uh, there's extraordinary courage and good cheer and, uh, and uh, exciting physical challenges for those two grandfathers. And I spoke to Tom uh, out on the water just a couple of days ago. Uh, so you'll hear the sounds of them on their kayak, uh, on their grand uh, adventure, their grand uh, odyssey uh, up the coast. So we'll get that uh, very soon in the show. And uh, then later in the show, uh, perhaps to wrap us up, we'll end up with uh, Professor Bill Mitchell. Now, regular listeners to the show will probably remember uh, Professor Mitchell, who has, uh, who is uh, one of uh, Australia's preeminent economists, uh, who has uh, internationally recognised as one of the pioneers of modern monetary theory and uh, who has always uh, got, the, uh, as always, has got the antidote to the half-wit voodoo dribblings that we end up being imposed upon us in, in, in lieu of actual economic analysis on the, uh, on the capitalist media. We, uh, we have uh, so much which is said about the economy, but uh, so little uh, actual substance. Well, uh, you know, we'll be getting uh, Professor Mitchell uh, on the line. And uh, uh, I spoke to Bill uh, just yesterday, and he's talked, uh, talked great sense about the recent interest rates. So, of course, we, those of us who are uh, either paying out a mortgage or paying rents 
uh, or indeed buying anything in Australia will be aware that uh, the Australian Reserve Bank has been on a futile campaign of jacking up interest rates across the board for years now. And uh, we we sort of had hoped perhaps that uh, this this new, relatively new ALP government, uh, the uh, the Albo government, would do something to prevent this uh, continued transfer of wealth away from those of low and middle incomes and up into the, uh, the the pockets of the 1%. But uh, unfortunately, we have this week yet again another uh, a pointless rate rise from uh, the RBA and, uh, yeah, Professor Mitchell will give a much better uh, an understanding of what that's all about for us later in the show. Also got a, a short piece from Greg Jericho from the Australia Institute to introduce that uh, that discussion of uh, the RBA interest rate hike uh, that has just been imposed upon us all again. And, um, oh, look, we'll see how we go for time. I think once we've done all that, we may be packed out. But I think also perhaps uh, I might have just received a series of text messages from uh, Violet Coco, who's uh, saying that uh, we we may be able to run the Coco Report uh, this afternoon. So we'll be able to wrap up the show in style, talking about the uh, the national frontline scene for uh, the resistance to extinction and uh, for uh, a stable climate from one of its leading proponents there. So that'll be great as well. Anyway, look, if that's not enough for you, I'm afraid we'll have to just pack in another hour sometime later on. <laughs> it, uh, you can always uh, tune in again if it wasn't enough for you around uh, on the show today. You can tune in on our podcast. Please subscribe to the Environmental As Anything podcast now while you're listening to the show. Go, go and Google it or search it with whatever your favourite search engine is and find Environmental As Anything podcast. And, uh, yeah, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, every week we do the highlights of the show, the original content that we put to air, we put out on the uh, the podcast for you to share around with your friends and uh, stimulate that conversation on these important issues. Also there to stimulate our conversation is the Environmental As Anything Facebook page and our Instagram account. My goodness me, we're everywhere you look so go out there please and like and share and uh, and and, uh, and subscribe and do all those things that you do to support uh the outlet for community independent media here on environmental as anything so i think uh we will launch soon first of all i just had something on my mind and by the way of an opinion i sometimes like to take a few minutes of your time early in the show as we are now just to talk about uh some of these things because as i said earlier uh there was uh, this week uh, listening to the uh the 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 the, the, the trolling that uh, uh, the fossil fool in Parliament gave to uh, Ian Dunlop, and also having received some trolling on uh, the Facebook page uh, from uh, somebody who was uh, basically saying that uh, you know that, that climate change is bunk and you know blah blah blah, giving their their, their pointless opinions. Um, I just was struck by the fact that physics doesn't give a rat's ass about your opinions. Right, your opinions, if they are not based in fact, they're worthless, and and it's wrong of us to pretend that all opinions are equal. It's a mistake because there's a bunch of people out there who want to substitute opinions for facts. Now, 
if your opinions are based in facts, if you have established a line of authoritative and credible information which supports your opinion, then your opinion becomes somewhat more worthwhile. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there in the world today who think that just having an opinion makes them worthy of respect. And they're wrong. Dishonest and false opinions need to be debunked. They need to be called out for what they are. It's a mistake to uh, to treat those opinions with respect, which uh, are actually worthless. So I, I do want uh, us to consider carefully, you know, the difference between... I mean, we're all born ignorant. We're all, we all live in a universe where, of which 95% of, of the, 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 the matter and energy in the universe is unidentifiable to the leading experts on Earth. Our greatest astrophysicists don't know what dark matter and dark energy is and it constitutes 95% of the gravitational force of our universe as far as we can tell. A huge amount of ignorance out there. There's an infinite universe and we have only finite knowledge. So each of us, including me, is, uh, are, are really you know, vastly ignorant. But the difference between stupidity and intelligence is that intelligence requires that we defer... Uh, in our opinions to the facts that are, that are best presented to us. We know uh, that the climate emergency is real because 97% of scientists agree. Scientists who've made their life work, the study of the climate, are in a, a almost universal agreement that this is really happening, it's really caused by humans and uh, that we really need to do something about it if our civilization is not going to be uh, collapsing. But unfortunately, there's a body of opinion out there that says, oh, if they just say no, no, no to the facts, if they sort of hide their heads in the sand and, and, and have this cowardly delusional response, which is that they, their opinion is somehow uh, equally valid as 97% of the scientists out there, then we end up in what they think is a debate, but which is actually just a huge distraction from reality. So again, I'm I'm a big advocate, and I've I've t- been for for quite a while, uh, being very blunt with uh, these uh, these people who who trot out their 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 half wit delusions and and demand that we all pay attention to them. It's time that they shut up. Uh, the adults are talking. They should go and play in the corner quietly and try and learn something. Yeah, you know, intelligent people are quite capable of acknowledging their ignorance, but stupid people think they're the smartest people in the room. And that's, uh, that's the big distinction. Anyway, I think uh, we'll hear a good example about that uh, later on in the show uh, when uh, Ian Dunlop deals with uh, one of these uh, fossil fool apologists in uh, the parliamentary inquiry. And he does so with dignity and respect, but uh, quite directly. Singing to a lie, a lie attitude. Singing to a lie, a lie. Singing to a lie, a lie attitude. We're bound for Botany Bay. That was the slightly hysterical joy of environmentalists Dr. Simon Leslie and uh, Tom Hunt, both from the Illawarra, who are engaged in an extraordinarily heroic 
uh, journey sailing a kayak between two of Australia's key coal ports, Port Kembla and Newcastle, to draw attention to the need to halt the burning of fossil fuels while hopefully demonstrating that a great deal of fun can be had in watercraft that don't burn up the planet. Okay, Tom, uh, thank you for joining Environmental as Anything today. Uh, you're, uh, you're actually afloat as we speak, I understand. That's right. Um, Sean, we're uh, on the Hacking River today, heading towards Audley Weir. Well, we'll, we'll get... Well, that sounds like a, a slight detour, but we'll get to your reasons for going on that detour later. Can I first get you to introduce yourself to the audience who, who may, may or may not have ever heard of your uh, heroic adventure? <laughs> um, now, my name's Tom Hunt. I'm a retired systems engineer. I worked for BHP, or Australian Iron and Steel, as it was when I started with them, at Port Kembla for 31 years. Uh, and, uh, and then I've worked another 11 years at the University of Wollongong as a project manager. I, um, I've lived in the Illawarra since I left school and uh, uh, currently living on the shore of Lake Illawarra uh, in the house we built there just above sea level about 20 years ago. Lovely. And uh, Yes, it's a lovely spot. We, we really do appreciate uh, the, things, the wonderful things we've got there. But when I was building it 20 years ago, I was hearing reports about uh, if Greenland melted with this, you know, this uh, climate change that might be happening, it, uh, it could raise the sea level seven meters. Mm. By chance, the uh, ground floor of our house is just seven meters above sea level. So I thought, well, how serious is that? Is that real? Is that possible? And I, I've done it. I did a science degree when I was at university. I did physics and math. And so it wasn't difficult to do the sums. Uh, the amount of ice in Greenland, if it melted, it's a big kilometers high. And you spread that across the world, and yes, that's seven meters of sea level rise. And by the way, if you if you hit the, uh, the sea by one degree, you get another seven meters of sea level rise to go with it. <sighs> Yes, so your so your beautiful home on the on the shores of Lake Illawarra is amongst those many many uh, you know uh, that are that are under imminent threat from the climate emergency. Then that's right. Um, but yeah, looking at history, I then looked at encyclopedias and, and trusted journals because the stuff in the newspapers you didn't know what to believe. Um, and like it's just horrific the amount of sea level change you can get. Uh, only a matter of 15,000 years ago, but the sea level was 120 metres lower than it is today. But the, uh, you've probably seen the continental shelf on maps and things. Well, that used to be the coastline of Australia. <laughs> like, and that's been the time of uh, 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 earliest people in Australia. First Nations people were here long before that, and they've seen the sea level go up and down, I have. But we, in our civilised times, in the last 10,000 years, since the first so-called civilised life on Earth, um, we've never seen anything like that before. It's been really stable. The sea level's mm. hardly changed in the last 10,000 years. Mm. And, of course, the, the, the climate changes with it. And, like, studying this stuff, I just couldn't believe that our government knows about this. 
situation as a scientist as a, as a, as a man of uh, you know the, the world you've looked at it and, and honestly thought about you know the situation and you you're alarmed by it how did you translate that alarm into your current action sailing for sanity tell us about that you're you're, you're currently on board your two-person uh, uh, Hobie trimaran uh, uh, you know sailing north uh, heading heading up to uh, to Newcastle tell us how you came to make that decision well, believe it or not, it stemmed from me deciding I'd take a year off from activism and do something more enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> Good move. <laughs> I did have the thought that maybe I could use this kayak. The kayak has been uh, a possession of my wife and I for about seven or eight years now. We've taken it. We towed it up to Cairns with an electric car in the same month that Scott Morrison was saying... It'll ruin your weekend having an EV. <laughs> That'll learn him. <laughs> <laughs> the point being that we've enjoyed doing things with EVs with the cars at our house and basically electrified everything to reduce our footprint. Travelling mm. up the coast enjoying a, a vehicle and a, a plating that didn't use fossil fuel we thought we're doing the right thing, but like to think it's not changing much of the world, just doing it ourselves. Mm. I've been involved in activism for a while. I was organising protests back in 2013. Um, doing stuff like uh, up at Abbott Point there. When was that about 2015? 2014? Um, with a group up there, I've been down in Canberra, got a flash mob in, in Canberra, I shouldn't admit that on radio, <laughs> in, in Parliament House on the Marble Steps. Mm. I was live on ABC News Channel making a stupid speech <laughs> in the middle of Parliament House. It was great fun, and I've done lots of fun things like, well, that, but I don't see that as achieving a great deal. I joined Citizens Climate Lobby in 20, I was that, probably about 2015 too, I was doing that amongst other things. And uh, I got really involved with Citizens Climate Lobby. Its aim is to uh, to get us, well, to provide the political will for a livable world. Mm. Uh, so, um, where to from there? Now, Citizens Climate Lobby's been good. But this last year, I thought, 
uh, and of course, it's, it's, it's the approach that we take in lobbying government through the citizens' climate lobby. So we have appointments, we go along and meet politicians and try to persuade them towards uh, doing the right thing. Yep. Make friends with them instead of being outside the protest race or being quite not talk to them. Yeah. Um, and we've had a, a fair level of success, but it hasn't changed things. And as Anthony Albanese told me uh, when we met with him uh, just after he became leader of the opposition, he uh, we put to him the idea that there really should be a price on carbon that make it a, uh, a yourself uh, uh, out of the uh, at sea at sea on your way north uh, in in your tiny little boat so what's that adventure the actual details of your plan well okay well uh, instead of paddling down the Murray which was my my idea to have a rest from all of this I decided that since there was a, an action at Newcastle going back a few months I'd heard about it way in the distance. I thought, oh, good to go there again. I've been to two previous blockades in Newcastle Harbour. Um, and I have a, I had a sail painted up, no more fossil fuels back then. So I thought, well, it's okay to be there, but yeah, I could do this long kayak. Why don't I go up the coast for Kimber, another very large port mm. uh, that sells as well as coal. It's not nearly as big, but it is an export and it's only four to only 14 million tons of coal from Port Kemba. Piddling. Uh, so, that's right, there's a fair bit going out there as well. In spite of Stu's default, who was quite right down the coast in Newcastle event, of course, is the rising tide, uh, the blockade of the world's largest coal port happening from the 24th to the 27th in uh, Newcastle Harbour on the Hunter River there. Bigger, bigger 
protests uh, as we've ever had on climate change in Australia that weekend. So it should be a good weekend. Well, uh, presumably uh, the the news of what you're doing, uh, what you are doing, is clearly an heroic uh, effort. Clearly, there's been some some hair raising uh, sailing uh, going on on that tiny little vessel of yours, and uh, you haven't yet made it halfway. I mean, I imagine that Sydney Harbour would have to be considered the, uh, roughly the halfway point, uh, and then from there you've got to go up to uh, to, to Newcastle. How are you feeling about the journey uh, thus far? Well, I have to say that I was a bit uh, naive thinking that I could do it quite as easily uh, as I might. Uh, maybe uh, I hadn't anticipated the seas being quite so heavy as the, uh, as the inland waters I'd be more used to. Mm. Although I, I've spent, spent a lot of time on Jarvis Bay, I've never been out the open sea right now. And, uh, yeah, I was very lucky to run into... Uh, a friend that I made it through CCL several years ago, Simon Mabry. Um Simon's a doctor from Thrall. Um, well, he heard that I was doing, thinking about doing this. He, uh, he jumped at the chance of joining me, and like I've never looked back. And I couldn't have chosen a better partner because he's got a lot, a lot of sea sailing experience, and uh, uh, he's a fond of knowledge on the subject. And I don't think I could possibly have done it without him. Um, and to be honest, having a doctor on board is not a bad idea. <laughs> Reassuring in times of trouble, no doubt. So, yeah. so it sounds like it's been fairly punishing. Um, do, you, uh, do, you, do you think that the, um, the, the weather looks uh, promising for the next uh, a few days? How, uh, how long will it take you? Are you going to sail into, when are you going to sail into Newcastle? Well, the plan is to sail into Newcastle. I think it's the 22nd, mm -hmm. and uh, they're going to have a little reception for us when we get there. But we've got lots of events along the way. We've got, uh, we've got Morby Weir today. Uh, there's a protest against Peabody Coal, who's polluting the Hacking River each year. Um, the police ban into Transcala. Uh, um, and uh, it's in the National Park uh, that this pollution is happening, and this uh, team of locals who decided to have a protest in the Sonata Honor and we're going to join them there in just a few minutes. They're marvellous. So we've got another style Friday going into Sydney, which is going to be interesting, going from Botany Bay around and up, around into the head. Northeasterly mm. winds, which are directly against us. That's when they're travelling that way. When we've got a north, uh, uh, sorry, a southerly wind, it's a lot better. Mm. And suddenly on Sunday evening, so after we leave, we're, we're visiting the Opera House on Sunday. Uh, we've got a, a lunchtime appointment there with rising tide scene on the steps of the Opera House. And have a picnic there, that's the idea. Hopefully we'll get a few politicians along um, to, to talk to as well. Uh, and then Sunday evening, which is an ideal time that there's a southerly coming through then, uh, we'll actually start heading around and uh, outside on uh, past Manly. Uh, and then the following morning, we'll try to do the run all the way up to the coast 
to uh, pit water and around into pit water. Mm. Uh, beach. Yep. Uh, so that's our challenge to try and do that while there's the sutherland. And uh, but this Friday going into Sydney is going to be fun because there's nothing but north east the whole time of the season. Well, good luck to you. It sounds like an extraordinary adventure. Uh, yeah, two blokes in a tiny boat uh, up the coast uh, from from one major coal port to the biggest coal port in the world, from Port Kembla to Newcastle, a, a huge uh, journey in such a, a, a tiny craft. And uh, you, you've managed to keep uh, your, your, your good cheer and your, your spirits up. Uh, that's, it's a very impressive effort. So thank you. Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, I must say, but it's uh, perhaps a challenge that we are uh, equated to the challenge that humanity has to, to switch from fossil fuels to renewables. It's going to be a, a bit of a challenge to get there, uh, uh, but we have to do it. Mm. It's so important. And if we have to do this to get up to Newcastle and, and uh, take a few risks uh, and uh, maybe punish ourselves a little, maybe that's what we've got to show everybody we've got to do. Mm. The world's got to do a bit of that to save our grandchildren, quite frankly. Mm. Well said. Well, uh, look, uh, thank you for making time to talk to us while you're out there on the water. And, um, you know, happy travel, safe sailing, and uh, we'll hopefully I'll meet you at the uh, rising tide uh, in, in, in the Newcastle uh, port there on the Hunter River. You're coming along. Good shot. Well done. May the winds be with you. There's a good sea today. The wind is just perfect for going north. The waves are uh, a little challenging, but what do you reckon? Just stop. I'm coming. Uh, just uh, bouncy. Just a bit bouncy, yeah. yeah. My seat over there is uh, is a wash. So I'm sitting on the trampoline here. That's my trampoline over there. You can see it's not too bad at all. <laughs> Reserve Bank has done it again, increasing interest rates up to 4.35%. That's the 13th increase since April last year and it's had a massive impact on households. If fully passed on, this will add another $110 each month to the cost of repaying a $650,000 home loan. And since the start of the rate rises last year, the cost of repaying such a loan will have risen nearly $1,600 a month. That's about a rise of 50%. And it's a double whammy for households because at the same time, wages have not been keeping up with inflation. So while mortgages have been rising, real wages have fallen around 3% since March last year. Now, for a couple on a combined income of say $130,000, that means they've already lost around $315 in spending power each month before even taking into account that extra $1,600 they may be having to spend on more on their mortgage. The Reserve Bank is trying to limit the ability of households to spend when they're already being forced to cut back due to this weak wages growth. Workers are not to blame for the rise in inflation, but they are the ones who have been forced to suffer. 
the RBA just needs to stop hammering workers even as their real wages continue to fall. Professor William Mitchell holds the Chair of Economics and is the Director of the Centre for Full Employment and Equity, Coffee, an official research centre at the University of Newcastle. He's also the Docent Professor of Global Political Economy at the University of Helsinki, Finland. And he is one of the co-founders of Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. On November the 7th, uh, 2023, the Reserve Bank of Australia raised its policy rate target for the 12th time since May 2022 by 0.25 points to 4.35%. It was an unnecessary increase, just like the 11 increases that preceded it, according to Professor Bill Mitchell, uh, who is on the line with me now. Bill... Uh, why unnecessary and why do you call this a uh, representing a broken policy model for the RBA? It was unnecessary because inflation has been falling for around 12 months since about September last year and it will continue falling. And the reason for that is that the driving forces of the inflation are transitory in the sense that they are going to abate. They're associated mainly with the uh, the, the disruptions of the pandemic and, and the world is taking some time to work through all those disruptions and adjust systems, etc. Uh, so those things are abating. We know they're abating. The, the, the other factors that are currently driving inflation are uh, uh, petrol prices, and that's that's because OPEC, the oil cartel, is manipulating prices to suit their profit ambitions. Uh, the RBA can't. The RBA decisions won't alter that at at all. The other driving factors are electricity prices, and that's really because the regulative model on these privatised energy. Uh, electricity companies has failed and uh, it gives them too much leeway and the RBA interest rate changes won't affect that. That's a, that's a regulatively, a, a regulative decision. And the other interesting driver at the moment are rents and rents are rising relatively quickly in a fairly tight housing market, very tight housing market because landlords are passing on RBA interest rate decisions. So you've got the situation where the RBA claims it's fighting inflation by pushing up interest rates, but it's actually fueling inflation because of the impact upon uh, landlord mortgage costs and therefore passing on in the form of higher rents. So all of those things put together, you've got the central bank fighting inflation yet causing it. And on the other factors, the RBA's policy changes are not having a single impact and uh, that's what I call a broken policy model. Yes. You also say that the RBA policies are transferring income and wealth from poor to rich at rates not seen before in this country. Uh, And you go on to say that they're pretending that the inflationary episode is demand-driven, whereas the data shows that it remains supply-side phenomenon. Can you expand on that at all? Yeah, I mean, the point is that if interest rates were going to have any impact, they would they would ha- have to target things that are sensitive to interest rate changes. So the things that are most obviously sensitive to interest rate changes are business investment and consumer durable expenditure. 
So, you know, buying things on credit, uh, refrigerators and white goods and those type of more durable items. And what that typically suggests then is that for interest rates changes to have any scope to fight inflation, the inflation really has to be due to excessive spending, that there has to be excessive spending relative to supply for interest rates to be effective. Now, even in a a situation where expenditure, that is the demand side of the economy, is excessive for some period, it's highly questionable whether whether monetary policy changes, that is interest rate hikes, will be effective anyway. And one of the reasons for that scepticism is that if if uh, businesses have currently got overdrafts, you know, uh, uh, credit for their working capital, etc., and businesses have got price-setting power, which many businesses in Australia have because of the concentrated nature of industry, then interest rate rises from the Reserve Bank are likely to be inflationary in the short term because the businesses will just pass on their higher credit costs onto consumers. So there's there's quite a bit of scepticism about, in my mind, about whether inter, uh, monetary policy is effective even in the case of a demand-side inflation. But the inflationary pressures we've got now are largely supply-side. And as I said in my previous uh, point, interest rate, the, the, the factors that are driving those supply-side pressures are not sensitive to domestic interest rate changes. So what the hell are they doing? Well, what we know what they're doing. The the um, interest rate rises are having a massive redistribution effect. And what I mean by that is that uh, relatively low-income mortgage holders are obviously playing now as a result of last Tuesday's decision 52% more on their mortgage monthly payments than they were doing in April 2022 before the interest rate changes started. And who's getting who's getting that extra those extra mortgage payments? The banks. And as we saw in the current week in Australia, two big banks have already notified massive increases in their profits, in their net profits after tax. And so that the, those net profits are going to the bank shareholders who tend to be the better off members of our society. So you're getting a, a, this massive redistribution of income from low income to high income wealthy, all engineered because bank profits rise when the RBA hikes interest rates. So you've got a situation where the interest rate rises are not doing very much to stifle inflation because the forces are, that are driving inflation are not sensitive to interest rate changes. But at the same time, uh, the interest rate changes are redistributing income from poor to rich. It's as simple as that. So these uh, low to middle income mortgage holders are not driving the uh, the inflation, but they are carrying the can for it while the banks make record profits out of being able to charge higher interest rates. The banks uh, usually claim that uh, charging higher interest rates is balanced out by the fact that they have to pay higher interest rates on deposits. What do you think of that? 
Well, that's certainly true, but the question is uh, whether the amounts that they're charging borrowers are rising proportionately with the amount they're paying depositors. And as I said, that the data this week from from Westpac and NAB shows that uh, the net profits after tax are rising, and and that means that the gap between the amount they're paying depositors and the amount they're charging mortgage holders is increasing. So, yeah, it's true that uh, banks are paying higher deposit rates now, but the the growth in the rise in deposit rates is uh, much slower and more lagged uh, than than the amount they're charging mortgage holders. And so that margin increases and that means their net profits rise. And uh, that's 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 in the that's what the data is telling us. It's quite clear. And um, what about the the idea? I mean, obviously, bank profits are uh, are up hugely, but there's a lot of other profiteering going on. Uh, the, um, the the Australia Institute says that uh, they see uh, more impact on inflation from profiteering from, say, coals and woolies than uh, than from from you know from a lot of other sources. What do you think about that analysis? Yeah, I mean, the RBA is denying that uh, in in several statements they've made over the last year. They're, they're denying that uh, profit gouging is going on. The data appears to show that uh, c- corporate profits are, are booming. Uh, well, not appears to show that. It shows that corporate profits are, are booming and that real wages are declining. The purchasing power of the money wages that we get uh, is is declining. And so there is no wage price spiral going on like there was in the 1970s where workers would try to defend their purchasing power by pushing up wage demands and firms would respond by then protecting their margins by pushing up prices. That was what happened in the 1970s. That's definitely not happening now. Wages growth is still very, uh, very low. Uh, it has been increasing a little bit, but it's still very low and it's well below the inflation rate, even though the inflation rate has been falling for the last year. And so purchasing power of wages is down, yet profits is up. And so while we can't see it, we, we can't, there's no, data series called profit gouging, putting together all of those things I've just mentioned tells us that uh, firms are increasing margins. Uh, They're taking advantage of the situation to increase their profit margins. Uh, They're not just passing on extra costs. They're they're not only passing on extra costs through imports, et cetera, but they're, they're, they're increasing their margins, which... Whether you want to call that profit gouging or not, so, <laughs> up to you. I call that profit gouging. Yeah. So uh, not not a wage uh, price spiral, just an old-fashioned price spiral. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the the bottom line is that firms are are, are definitely enduring higher costs, you know, mainly through the disruptions from the pandemic. Uh, in terms of shipping and transport costs, there are other, uh, obviously, energy costs have gone up because of the way in which the privatised electricity companies are gouging. And uh, uh, oil costs are, 
therefore petrol costs are going up, which is affecting transport costs. So firms are, corporations are obviously enduring those costs like all of us, but they're going one step further and saying, okay, let's, uh, let's not only pass these costs on, but let's increase our profit margin over costs. And uh, that's called gouging. Bill, I know you've got limited time. You're a busy man. You're in Japan right now, uh, and no doubt uh, un- under the pump over there. But there's, uh, I just wanted to wrap this up, if we can, with a uh, a quick summary of what you think should be done. You say there is another way. Uh, what what should the government policy prescriptions around inflation and interest rates look like from your point of view? Well, yeah, I'm working in Japan at the moment, and uh, think about. The, the Western central banks and treasuries have all responded to this period in a similar way, pushing up interest rates, tightening fiscal policy, spending and taxation, mainly spending. And uh, they've all adopted the sort of mainstream view that uh, this inflation has to be brought down as quickly as possible. And the way to do that is to push up unemployment, uh, reduce the capacity, therefore reduce the income of workers and uh, uh, force workers to contract their spending and uh, push the economy towards a recession. Now, the the point about that model, that mainstream model, is that they haven't really got an idea of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, the Reserve Bank said in its statement this week that there were a lot of things that were unexpected they were deviant from their forecast. Well, the bottom line is they don't really know what's going on. They don't know what the impact of their interest rates is really having. Um, there are so many uncertainties with using monetary policy in this way. Uh, we don't know whether the net effect of the people that are damaged by the interest rate rises, the low income workers, etc. Uh, whether their spending cuts will be greater or less than the spending increases of those who benefit from the interest rate rises, those with wealth in financial assets. So there's clearly people with increased spending capacity and they are going for broke. There's no doubt about that. Uh, uh, You can see that in speculation on housing, luxury car purchases, all of those things, travel, so, you know, and we also don't know what's, what, what the impacts are going to be as people come off uh, fixed rate mortgages onto variable rate mortgages. That's, a, that's increasingly happening over the current period and into the next six to 12 months. And, you know, it may be that there will be a devastating recession as a, as a response of more and more workers. I mean, the average mortgage holder is about fifteen to sixteen hundred dollars a month worse off than they were previously because of the interest rate rises. So the 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 bias in that type of policy approach is to push the economy to recession, push unemployment up. I mean, the RBA wants about one hundred and fifty thousand extra workers to become unemployed. Mm. Well, what sort of policy model is that? And the alternative is that, yeah, I'm living in Japan at the moment working and the Bank of Japan hasn't shifted interest rates at all. They are still around zero. And the reason the Bank of Japan hasn't done that is that they have formed the view that the inflationary pressures 
are transitory, they're supply side, and they will they will abate uh, over time. Patience oh, is just needed while the while the world adjusts to the disruptions of the pandemic and and a new a new sort of uh, normal emergence, not the pre-pandemic normal, but a new normal. And the Bank of Japan understands that uh, that when all of that when all of the impacts of the COVID disruptions work their way through the system. Uh, they want to be sure that uh, we're not in recession. And so they're holding interest rates, they're patient. Uh, they believe that uh, uh, when all of those disruptions work their way out, we'll see what the situation is. And they're concerned that there will be a deflationary environment, which, which you know, is uh, higher, higher unemployment, uh, stifled consumer spending, business investment, impacted negatively if they put up interest rates and so they're willing to wait it out and see and on the fiscal side the the spending and taxation side the government adopted the view that it would help household low-income households with some cash transfers it would help businesses uh, with some uh, subsidies to um, discourage them from pushing up margins uh, in face of increasing costs. And that's been the Japanese government's approach. And uh, so what you're observing is interest rates haven't shifted. Those redistribution effects that I mentioned in Australia haven't from poor to rich haven't happened. Low-income households are getting some respite from the cost of living pressures through fiscal transfers. And the inflation's falling faster than it is in Australia, and and that's because the supply side is uh, is correcting, and you're not getting any of those uh, interest rate hike effects on inflation occurring through rents or through businesses passing on higher borrowing costs. That's not happening in Japan, and so inflation's falling more quickly than it is in Australia without the interest rate effects. That's the alternative model, and that's the model that the RBA should have followed. It didn't. We're worse off because of it. It's a failed policy model, and maybe we'll learn in the future to abandon it and look for a different type of model, like as in Japan. Well, let's hope, eh? Um, Yeah. I know that you're busy, so I should let you go. As much as I've got more questions I'd love to ask, um, uh, just want to respect your time. But uh, thank you so much for the time you've given us today and uh, some clarity on that uh, that rather vexed issue that doesn't seem to actually ever uh, get get any uh, sort of rational airtime here in Australia. Well, thanks very much, Sean, and uh, we'll talk again next time. That was Professor Bill Mitchell, one of Australia's pre-eminent economists, talking to us about how the Reserve Bank of Australia's monetary policy decisions represent a terminally broken policy model for Australia, how it is actually causing inflation, creating record profits for banks and represents a massive income redistribution from the poor to the rich, engineered by our central bank.
Thanks for being here with me on Environmental as Anything. It's a uh, it's been a big show, and uh, we've got uh, we're t- heading towards the end of it now. But uh, before we go, we uh, we like to conclude whenever we can with the Coco Report, where we get uh, news from the front lines from around Australia for the uh, fight for our climate and against our extinction. And of course, who better to give us that report than our very own Violet Coco herself? Wow. <laughs> Thanks for that intro, Sean. What a delight. No, it is a delight to have you uh, with us again, Violet. Thank you so much for making time, pulling over and, uh, and uh, taking our call. Oh, no worries. Well, I think it's really important that we have a chance to talk about some of the things that have been happening on the front line at the moment. Obviously, we've got things happening in the peace activism front and, and the climate front, and, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to unpack those with you. Oh, it's great. Uh, so you've, uh, you, you've mentioned uh, peace activism. Obviously, the, the horrific situation uh, in, uh, in both uh, Gaza and the Ukraine uh, yes. you know, deserves, uh, you know, some peace. And of course, you know, peace being an essential component for, uh, you know, the creation of justice and uh, and that being a necessary step towards uh, protecting our climate. I see the, the very clear connection there. What do you see happening around the peace movement here in Australia at the moment? Well, we just had a, a mobilisation called Sea Forces in Gadigal Country, which is otherwise known as Sydney, uh, which is where a bunch of um, warmongers, people who sell weapons, um, uh, gathered to sell weapons to each other and, and those who might be interested in buying them. And uh, we had an incredible crew of people go and disrupt their um, shopping spree of weapons to continue to the war machine. And uh, unfortunately, um, we saw a, a huge crackdown from the Strike Force Guard, which is a particular wing of the New South Wales police that uh, target activists would you believe it um so so uh what they were doing was um post these rallies where the activists would go and and call out to the um to the people who are profiting off the weapons industry and try and engage them in peace messaging um once they left those rallies we had new south wales police hunting these people down pulling over Ubers, pulling over their cars, finding them outside their homes and arresting them, holding them for, you know, nearly 48 hours in custody. And, um, and you know, and, and a lot of the fact sheets were really just about previous interactions and, and not about what they'd done because what they'd done was, you know, a peaceful rally. And so um, we're seeing, yeah, quite a extreme repression from New South Wales police against peace activists. We have similar things happening here um, with the Free Palestine Movement in Melbourne, Nam, uh, where we have police unleashing pepper spray on peace activists, um, tackling them to the ground as they try and share their message for a ceasefire on in the Gaza. So it's been it's been a tough week for uh, a couple of weeks for for peace activism mm. um, with the repressive state uh, showing its violent arm against these people, but. Um, the momentum is still building. So around the country, we're seeing a lot of activists gathering at ports and um, and calling for an end to um, supplies going to those war zones. Mm. So I'd recommend people sort of jump on to, uh, you know, Wage Peace or um, other 
um, communities of peace activists to get involved in those. Yep. So wagepeace.org, uh, is, is, that the, is that the right place to be looking? Wage peace is a good one, um, and any of the free Palestine movements are also holding really um, big rallies and, and can connect in. There's quite a few grassroots coming around, so it's hard to know who to recommend in what area. But if you do a little bit of digging, you will get there. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, so yes, wage peace is a good place to go. Important but. that we uh, that we actually fa- face up to these issues, isn't it? It's so easy to uh, to just sort of uh, see it all as being too big to do anything about, but it is something that. Uh, when we gather together, we can be effective. But people who are gathering together include the uh, Brisbane rebels in court this Monday, challenging the legal system to supply justice for the climate. That's right. So we had 13 rebels um, get into New South, uh, to the Brisbane Parliament and disrupt it for three minutes, calling for no coal, no gas. And um, and for that three minutes of disruption, they're facing three years in prison. They were at the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago, and again we saw some punitive behaviour from the police where they began used strategic litigation to delay their court, to keep them on bail, to keep, you know, sort of punishment by process. So they're back in the Supreme Court on Monday. But the rebels have actually called, instead of supporting them at the courts, what they'd really like is Parliament sitting the next day on the Tuesday the tw- and um, at 12 p.m. At, the, at Brisbane Parliament. Um, there's going to be a gathering of people there again. And um, it, it's not arrestable if you're not inside the Parliament, by the way, so don't stress out. Mm. Um, but but I highly recommend people go and gather outside the Parliament there and show Show their support, not just for those rebels, but also for a safe climate for our, for our future and for our kids. Mm. Um, and then also, though, so that's in Brisbane, but if you're a little bit further south, the same day on that Monday, David McBride starts his trial for the um, whistleblowers exposing war crimes, so back to that peace activism, um, exposing war crimes in Iraq. And so, yeah, he sees goes into court in Canberra. So if you're able to show support, I think they're gathering on the Sunday before and also the Monday at the court. So if you're able in, in close to Canberra, that would be the place to be. So that's uh, Sunday. Well, uh, so you're saying Tuesday at 12 p.m. Oh, no, not on Tuesday the 12th. So I'm getting confused. Uh, so Sunday no, no, tomorrow, no, no, tomorrow in Canberra and Monday. Tomorrow in Canberra and yep. Monday, that's right. Okay. And t- then Tuesday in Brisbane. But that's uh, Canberra will be at Parliament House or outside the court? Uh, it's outside the court, yeah. yeah. Awesome. And yeah, Mike McBride is uh, one of Australia's, you know, real war heroes, actually. And, uh, you know, like really deserves all the the support and respect we can give him. Uh, We've covered that story quite a bit here on the show. But uh, yeah, hopefully people will be able to get there. I know there is a contingent going from Lismore uh, down to Canberra. So that's uh, that's encouraging. Hopefully he'll get a really good turnout and good support. Yeah, that's great. Well, I was lucky enough to be able to talk to him um, one-on-one the other day, unfortunately under horrible circumstances of giving him a prison prep from the grassroots Mm. training, but uh, hopefully that's very unnecessary Mm. um, because I know it was quite distressing for his kids and uh, I really hope that we have a a just outcome out of his trial. But it, it will go for a few weeks, I think, three weeks. 
Yes, it's uh, yeah. it's one of those horrific situations. So uh, uh, being telling the truth, uh, speaking the truth, has a cost, uh, but uh, but seems to be from David's own uh, perspective, it's well worth it. He he doesn't seem to regret any of his efforts to expose the uh, the murders in Afghanistan. I'm going to just quickly say that there were, uh, I think, uh, uh, 41 Australian troops killed in Afghanistan. Uh, there were 39 murders that have been, charges have been laid uh, in which the Australian troops actually committed over there and were found guilty of. Uh, and, and of course, however many extra on top of that. So you know, there was as many, basically as many uh, murders committed by Australian troops as there were Australian troops killed in combat in Afghanistan. It's a disgraceful situation. Oh. But um, you know, I don't need to tell you that. But uh, the um, so then we've got uh, Rising Tide, of course, which looks exciting. That's right. So the 24th to the 26th in Newcastle, we'll be blocking the world's largest coal coal port. I think. Three percent of global emissions go through that port, or something like that. One percent, and um, uh, and yeah, it's it's uh, they've got uh, an arrangement for us all to be able to camp um, in the park next to the port, and an arrangement with the police that we are um, able to go out and block the water. So bring a dinghy, bring a surfboard, bring whatever you can, and. Um, and uh, but basically, you know, if there's not enough people in the water, the police will will breach and start allowing the boats to go through and let that dirty coal leave our port. Uh, whereas, you know, if we've got enough people there, then we'll be able to stop that port from running, which is really exciting. There's also um, lots of music going on. I mean, I was at the last rising tide where we blocked the coal train, and the food was incredible. So mm. that alone, I mm. would go. And on top of that, we get to save the planet as well. So well, saving the planet's always a bonus, isn't it? But mucking around in <laughs> boats, uh, you know, out in the sunshine and having music and fun with other people. I'm, I've, I'm looking forward to actually swimming across the uh, the Hunter River. That's that's what I've set. That's Are my you? goal. Are you? You're going to swim? Yeah, I think You're so. Swim it, sure. We, I'm going to try and encourage people to get with me and swim across the Hunter River. I think we should be turning it into the world's biggest uh, swimming carnival and uh, and making making the most of the opportunity to get in and actually, uh, you know, get some fitness and some fun out of the whole event. I'm also going to be bringing the, that uh, double kayak, which you, you, uh, you've you had a go on. Uh, oh, yes. That sounds amazing. So we'll hopefully we'll get to paddle around. And, and there's even a possibility that I might be able to sail into the Hunter River from Sydney with a, uh, a, a new friend that I met in Brisbane who has a yacht that she's going to be bringing in. So I might even be able to uh, turn up in style. That's fantastic. Well, as we said last week or two weeks ago, I think it was, it's going to be the who's who of activism. Everybody that I know that's worth knowing is going. Mm. So mm. I hope that everybody listening is also going to come and join us. Yes, indeed. And then, of course, after that, we've got Cop Out. So we've got the, the um, United Nations uh, are gathering again um, to engage in some blah, blah, blah. And um, and so we've got to make some noise to say how unimpressed we are with their blah, blah, blah. Did you know that more emissions have been released since the first COP than the 75 years before it? Mm. So they, they met to agree to reduce emissions, and yet more emissions have been released since. 
So, you know, it's a really important time for us all to gather. There is a massive coalition building in Sydney on Gadigal country, and uh, that is from the 30th to the 3rd. So I know a lot of people who are doing just this activist tour where they're going to go rising tide 24th to the 26th, Newcastle, uh, in, in Newcastle, then to Sydney from the 30th to the 3rd, and then they're going to make their way down to Nam in Melbourne and hit the December Rebellion as well, which is the 5th to the 10th. So it's of December. And so, you know, it's just going to be a, a road trip of rebellion and activism and fighting for justice. And it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be a really awesome couple of weeks. It sounds it. Yes, well, that's my plan is to, is to head, head along on that trail that you've just outlined. I think it's going to be a, a lot of fun and very interesting, very uh, uplifting. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just spruik a little bit of the December Rebellion. Um, there is one action that's being coordinated on the Saturday, which it has already a hundred people signed up as a as a mass action road sit. So it's going to be a really, really big, powerful stance of resistance here in Nam. There's going to be disobedience hitting the streets again, bit of dancing. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of people doing really fun actions, like some coal barons getting in the mode of the NGV and all kinds of things. Um, there's going to be also good food, so uh, that'll be there. We'll have the scout hall, and um, yeah, it'll be a really good time. So I hope... Uh, uh, that's that's sort of my I'm 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 going to be part of the hosting of that situation, so I look forward to to seeing everyone there. Well, I'll look forward to seeing you there, and I'm going to be uh, heading down in the meantime, hopefully getting to the Gecko 30th anniversary that's also going on in that uh, that in in between all of that. So there's uh, there's so much going on uh, for for the planet. Uh, beautiful people getting together, having having fun, and uh, making a difference together. That's uh, can we just exciting. take a take a little moment of history? What's gecko? Oh, How gecko. Sorry, the gecko. Yeah. I just say it like it means something to everybody. It's the uh, Goonga Environment Centre. Uh, and uh, the Goonga Environment Centre has been one of... It's more or less equivalent. I heard it said recently that it was equivalent to the North East Forest Alliance of yep. uh, Victoria. And so they were responsible for, well, a massive amount of uh, forest uh, activism, forest protection. And, uh, you know, of course, this year, uh, the announcement that there's been, uh, you know, uh, an end... To, there will be an end to native forest logging in Victoria uh, is, right. is, is, is to, to some degree, to a, to a large degree, down to a lot of their work and their Efforts over the yeah. last 30 years. So they're going to have 30th anniversary, a big get-together on the weekend uh, there. So it'll be a good opportunity for, again, for activists to gather in a peaceful and uh, joyous uh, celebration of, uh, of, of our, our struggles for survival. It's such an important part of activism to stop and celebrate. I think a lot of people miss that stage because it's so important to also stay active. But if you don't celebrate, then you just burn out. Mm. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that celebration and just a huge congratulations to Gecko and everybody who's been working hard on the forest campaigns this year. It's really cranked up. Mm. Of course, um, yeah, Colette, I was down seeing Colette last time we talked about that, who got out of prison for three months um, after forest defence. And uh, I think she's inspired a lot of people to step up as well around the country. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm really, really uh, keen on that campaign to end native forest logging. Yes, well, we just had uh, played a, a, a speech from Bob Brown that he made at Nambucca Heads where he'd gone up into the Kalang headwaters and he was uh, deeply inspired and said that if they're going to go in there and log it, he will come back and get arrested uh, along with everyone else. 
and uh, well, he didn't say he'd get arrested. He said he'll come back. So uh, you know, so yeah, definitely uh, a big enthusiastic crowd there on a rainy day in Nambucca Heads on the mid north coast. So you know, a national movement going on to uh, to finally put the madness of native forest logging to end. Uh, you know. So, uh, well, that's a that's a look. That's a big mouthful you just said there. Thank you so much uh, for uh, for bringing all of that to our attention, and thank you so much for being so on the job. I hope you've been having uh, some rest and recreation. I know there's uh, you know special celebrations are sometimes uh, worth worth pausing for. <laughs> that's true. Although there's that saying, there's no risk rest for the wicked or the righteous. No, I do. I get my rest in where I can. That's how I stay so strong. Um, yes. I, well, I think you're alluding to the fact that it's my birthday today. I didn't that, want to say. Is that it. what that, you're trying to allude to? I didn't want to. Didn't want to. You know, expose <laughs> you, that to the world. Me on the... <laughs> <laughs> but since you've mentioned yes. it, yes. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Violet. Thank you. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Well, I'm going to go visit my favourite place, which is the ocean. So ah. that's that's my little birthday celebration. Lovely, lovely. Look, that yes. sounds marvellous. You have a great time. We're going to have to wrap the show up now, but uh, thank you so much for helping me do it in style. Thanks, my friend. I'll see you again. Talk to you again soon. Hopefully we'll see you soon, yes. See you soon. Bye. Okay. That was, of course, Violet Coco uh, reporting in uh, with the Coco Report uh, on what's going on on the front lines of the uh, movement to protect our climate and our biodiversity and our planet. And uh, she's, uh, she's right there with it all, keeping us up to speed as she goes. So thanks, Violet, for that. And as I said to her, I wasn't lying. It's time now to wrap up the show. Thank you for being with me today. It's been great having your company. I hope you've enjoyed uh, everything that we've uh, had to offer and that uh, you will join us again next week for another episode of Environmental As Anything. In the meantime, please make sure that you do go to our podcast. You can uh, re re refresh yourself and review any of the interviews and material that we've put to air today that was original from us and you can also go onto our facebook page like the page share around uh, items of news uh, get in touch with us through there if you have items of news that you would like us to uh, give some coverage to and uh, you know so please just uh, you know subscribe to our podcast share it around and uh, share around social media uh, posts as well as much as you can it's great to share independent community media to the antidote for the, the toxic capitalist mush that we're served up otherwise. But time really is running out, so I will just say thank you again. I hope that until we meet again, you will be gentle with yourself, be kind to each other, and remember that we are all in this together. And we're going to go out with a track from the uh, Magunda Marugu Forest for uh, Festival for Forests, and this is Anya Tyrrell singing live there at that wonderful event. Hi. Let's make it happen.